0: We had softball in the morning yesterday, and uh, we went home and I sat on the couch all day. It was well-deserved, in my opinion, and uh, we had a great time with the family. So, uh, hey, hey, so it's one of those things, I want to share this with you because I think it's, um, it's pretty cool. Uh, you know, obviously, in the role that we are as staff, a lot of the stories that are that are told by people come to us, right? And so, so on on Tuesday and our me, on on Wednesday in our staff. meeting, mean, we have our our weekly staff meetings on Wednesday. We we sat down and kind of had this impromptu this story uh, wins like stories of wins at Vintage, and and it's one of those things where I really wish that every single person at Vintage could sit in these in this meeting because literally for like an over an hour. We just went around the circle and, and told stories uh, of, of not just like, hey, like I, someone was hurting and they got a Band-Aid. It's like, no, a person was literally at this time of the day said, I don't want anything to do with Jesus. And five minutes later, they said, I'm following Jesus for the rest of my life because I just met him and I'm undone. That's a true story. Like, it's amazing to see the things that God is doing. And one of the stories I want to tell, I'm not going to name names, but, but, but I was sitting here on Sunday. And they came up to me and just said, hey, Steve, we were, I was in worship. And she said, my, I, I was having a, I've been, I'd lost this ability to hear, and, and I'd lost this percentage of hearing. And she said, we were in worship, and my left ear began to burn, and I thought it was for this reason. But all of a sudden, I heard God's voice say, I want to heal you. And immediately, both ears opened from about 30% of hearing to 1%. immediately in worship. And we love these stories of God's movement and of God's miracles because we believe that he is a God who still does these things. And so as we sit here this morning, we're sitting here at church, or we're listening to music, and you're trying to wake up because you're at the early service, right? And the early service people always take longer to wake up, right? It's like you're sitting here like, oh, I'm just so tired. And, oh, man, I really, part of you is like, I should have just slept in this morning because it's probably not going to be a very good message. And you have all these thoughts going through your head. And the worship was like, oh, it was okay for me this morning, right? you're like, oh, I could have slept in. You're thinking about what you're going to do with your fantasy football team. You're sitting on your phone right now, like Scott's on his computer. He's not really taking notes. Right now what Scott's doing is his fantasy football team, right? No, I'm just kidding. No, because we're all sitting here. No, I'm just calling him out. But no, he's taking notes. But, but I think the thing I want you to recognize is that when we come into these moments, when we come in as the people of God, as we come into this room as the family of God, that when we come in, we come in with expectation. And that if we don't, it's not like you're in sin. You're just missing out. And I want you to hear it said that way, that that there are things that God has for his people and things that God has for his family and things that God has for his children, right? This story of this person, she's like, I was believing God, I had been praying and seeking his face. And and he came and she's I just wept and I wept and I was excited, and she said, if You heard me scream, then I apologize, because like all of a sudden I went from not being able to hear, she goes, I heard you, I heard you loud and clear for the first time in months in your message. And she actually liked it. That was good. Right? And so as we come into this moment, right, we don't, just, we don't just gather together. Just so we can say, hey, we came. We marked that off of our checklist for the, the week. We don't just show up on a Sunday so that we can have a better week. Because that's the idea that we grew up. I have to go to church or God's going to be angry and give me a bad week. Or if I come, then I'm going to come just so I can feel better. Instead of saying, no, God, I've come with the expectation of connecting with you, of being changed by you, and being released and sent out by you. Church should kind of look like Isaiah chapter 6. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. I became aware of of my sin. I am a man of unclean lips because I've seen the fullness of the glory of God. And an angel came over and touched my lips, right? And all of a sudden, I heard the voice of the Lord say, Who will go for me? And he said, I will, I will. That's the idea of our gathering. That we come to, to see the beauty and the power and the majesty and the glory of God to be undone by that, to recognize our need, our desperation for him. Listen, if we leave church not aware of our desperate need for Jesus, then we've missed part of what he has for us that morning and that gathering. Because he didn't want us to release us. We left a, we were pulled out of a church the other day, and I love the sign at their at their little parking lot. They were going out and says, You are now entering the mission field. I love that. I love that picture. You're now entering into the mission field. And so as we gather in here, I want you to say, we're, we're, we're hearing of God doing great things. We're, we're seeing God do great things. And here's the thing, we're not doing anything to cause those things to happen. He's just moving in his own power. He's moving on behalf of those who are asking. He's moving on behalf of those who are praying and listening and listening to his, for his voice and expecting him to move. And so as we come in this morning, I want us to invite you to the expectation of God's movement, of God's of God's presence, and then Him sending you out for the purposes of God. So with that, let's dive in this morning. I wanted to start where we began last week, and I want you to see this piece right here on the screen. If you were not here, and you probably can't, if you can't see it over here, just look on the screen. So we said last week, the purpose for why we exist as a church, not not vintage, I mean the church in general, but specifically also, yes, in a smaller sense, Vintage 242, is we are about community transformation. That God has placed us here for the purpose of transforming his community, bringing his kingdom on earth as he's already spoken it in heaven. So we are about community transformation. We, bring, we cause that. We, we help that. We make that happen. As we said, as we, said we live our real life. Right as we are living this life that God's called us to live, this spirit-filled life, this kingdom-minded life, as we live as the body of Christ, this real life, and we go into our community, we begin to transform it. We're the, we're the we're the change agents, empowered by God's Spirit. We are His change agents, and we said that real life, real life, right here in this Venn diagram is where, we, where family, discipleship, and mission overlap. As we're living in the context of family, which we talked about for many, many weeks, as we, as we are being discipled, and we're going to talk about, now moving forward, making disciples, and then as we live our life on mission every day of our life, saying, God, what do you have for me today? Who do you have for me today? Where all of these overlap, we say, this is what our real life looks like. So as we are living in family, about discipleship and living on mission, we transform the community in which we live. We believe it's not just, this is not just the call of Vintage 242. We believe this is the, the this is the call of God's people, the church working together in power. And so with that, we've been talking at length now about this, this call to family. You have you've may have grown tired of talking about family. We always get tired of being around family. probably get tired of talking about family, too, right? We've been talking about family, and I've said a lot of different things. I encourage you to listen to the podcast if you want to. But the thing that I want you to take away from this and, this, all, and all of these conversations about family is this. Number one, as the family of God, we are stronger together than we are apart, That's a primary piece for us, that as the body of Christ works together, that we need one. Listen, I'll say this unashamedly. We need one another. We need one another. I need you and you need me. We live in this interdependent need of relationship with one another. We are stronger together than we are apart The second piece of that is is simply this. There must be a greater, greater level of importance put on the spiritual family in your life and in my life. Listen, we all love, we said we love our individual families, but the, the unfortunate reality is that many times our own children, our own personal family are an idol that literally keep us from being obedient to God in the areas of our life. But there are things that we don't do for God because we're afraid of how it's going to impact our personal family. And God is saying to us, no, I want you to recognize, if you are, listen, that it is, listen, I will say this, it is dangerous, it is dangerous for you to live just you and your family disconnected from the family of God. That is dangerous. But if you are truly living in spiritual family with one another, where there's this overlap every day of you being in relationship with people, then you can prefer prefer and make important the spiritual family. Why? Because you have lots of parents and aunts and uncles and grandparents who are coming alongside of your family and encouraging and strengthening you. It's a great lie of the enemy that you have to circle the wagons and just take care of your personal family when things go bad. No, the biblical understanding is that when things go bad, because they will, it's imperative that you have hundreds of people around you caring for and fighting for you and fighting with you. And so for us, we said we're just need to give greater levels of importance to spiritual people because we need one another. But the beautiful piece about this is that as we, as we live in this place of togetherness, Living in the context of family, we say that it leads to otherness. Leads to others. I'm going to write this on this thing right up here. So you have this nature of, of togetherness. We said this an idea of living in family together. Living in family together. We said right here, togetherness. We are family together, right? And I'm going to say that togetherness, right here, togetherness leads to Otherness, And what I simply mean by otherness and togetherness is this. We are called to be the family of God. We are living together. We're doing life together. We are together. And our togetherness ultimately is going to lead us to otherness. And what do I mean by that? Well, it's Acts chapter 2 we've already looked at. When they live together as the people of God, the family of God, being the church, Loving one another, caring for one another, giving their lives away from one another. Every single person was being blessed, right? That's one level of otherness. Number two, all those who were outside of the church saw what was happening. They were undone by it, and they wanted to be a part of it, See, as we do life well, as we care for one another well, as we live in relationship with one another well, as we care for one another and love on one another and protect one another well, people on the outside go, they know that we are Christians by our love for one another. Do you know who said that? His name's Jesus. They will know that you are my followers by the way that you love one another. It's a beautiful piece. This picture that literally, as we do life well together, as we live well in the context of family, literally people on the outside want to get on the inside. Our neighbors go, oh, I want to be loved like that. And you're like, fantastic, because I have a family who wants to invite you in. And so our togetherness, our sacrifice, our service of one another causes those on the outside, the others, to want to be in the togetherness. So we talked about loving the stranger and inviting them in, in this beautiful picture of hospitality last week. And I I said that just take a practical step this week and just do meals with two people, someone that you know well in your community, and then someone who is outside of your community, outside of your family, someone you don't know that well. Because when we do that, listen, we bring the king. We can if we do that. We literally bring the kingdom of God one meal at a time. I mean, I love eating. Isn't it awesome? We can bring God's kingdom by simply sharing a meal with somebody and doing life with them and inviting them into our circle. The part of otherness I want to talk about this morning is this call to discipleship. This call to discipleship, this idea that in this place of togetherness, someone comes into our midst. We lead someone into relationship with Jesus. And in that moment, they are a person who has unrealized potential that needs to be realized. And it takes those of us who know Jesus better to come alongside of them and to help them. So let me tell you a story about by, by this boy named Alia. Now, Alia is is one of Karube Homes, one of the boys who lives with Tammy and Tammy's family, Karube Home in India. Now, the first time I met Alia, he was in he was in elementary school. Now, favorite stories of Alia is he went to his teacher one day, who was Hindu. You've heard this story if you've been at Vintage from the beginning. He, he literally went to his teacher. I forget he's in fifth grade and said, "Hey, um, my God's better than your God." And the teacher's like, "Okay." And they start talking about it, and, and he finally looked at it and said, hey, how about this? How about I challenge you to a race? This is a true story, by the way. Okay? This is not made up. This is a true story. I'll never forget. I get the email. It's Hilarious. I'll challenge you to a race. And if I win and I beat you, it means that my God is bigger than your God, and he's the real God. Do you want a race? The teacher goes, sure. So they go outside. Eliot takes off, and he wins the race. And he said, My God is better than your God, right? This is who Alia is. Even as a young boy, he's just, he loves Jesus. He literally, I told you the story, I I wasn't going to tell this, but I got to tell it anyway. Like literally, he's sitting in his class, and because he's such a great kid, he was so studious, and the teachers really loved him. They, one day the teacher said, hey, I got to step out of the classroom. Uh, Alia, you're responsible, I trust you, will you take over the classroom? And she walked out, he stood up, and preached the gospel of Jesus Christ into his entire class and said, now those of you who have these Hindu ropes, right, tied around your waist that are put on you at birth, if you want to give your life to Jesus, stand up, and like ten kids stood up, and he says, well, if that's the case, then you have to renounce your other gods and cut off this little thing around your waist and say you're fully devoted to Jesus. Eight of them sat down, and they came up, took the scissors out of the teacher's desk, cut the string off, he got kicked out of school. And we were proud of him, <laughs> right? We're preaching the gospel, bringing Jesus. This is Alia. But the thing you need to know about Alia, as great as the kid is, right, and as awesome as he is in loving Jesus, he's even that, that great of an athlete. And I don't mean, like, he's great in the home. I mean, like, he is great in the whole state of Karnataka in India, which is 64 million people. Just to kind of give you a – because most of us don't know demographics and stuff – The largest state in our union is California at 38 million. And so, Alia... Alia, <clears throat> one day, the PE the, the, like, e. teacher, the teachers at school came to Tammy and said, Hey, there is the, the national team for cricket in India is bringing this, this camp here, and we would love for Alia to go. We think that he could really do well. And so they scrounge all the money together and they sent him to this camp. They get to the camp after the camp is over. One of the members of the national team comes over to Tammy and says, Are, are you Alia's are you mother? And he goes, she goes, Yes. And he said, Well, I just want to let you know that Aaliyah has the skill to play for the national team Sunday. We believe that you really need to take all of your resources, you have it, and invest into his future because he has that level of skill. Men, to put it into context, imagine if you sent your son or your daughter, per se, to a Peyton Manning quarterback camp. At the end of camp, Peyton Manning came up and said, Hey, Eddie, I think you really need to take your son and invest into him because he has has all the skills to play in the NFL someday. That's the exact same thing that happened here, right? But as crazy as a cricket, it's not his best sport. His best sport is track and field. In the state of Karnataka, going up against kids who were like two or three years older than him, and 68 million the population, he won the races that he ran. And you have to recognize... That at one point in time, he was at a desperate crossroad where his future did not look good at all because his parents had died a horrible death. He was all alone by himself and his future looked very bleak until the salvation moment came. And I mean salvation physically, where the, where the, where the, um, person at DFACS basically said, hey, Tammy, there's this boy. Do you want him? And she's like, let us pray about it. And the moment came where they prayed and said, yes, we'll take him. It was a salvation moment. And in that, all of a sudden, his unrealized potential, specifically in athletics, all of a sudden because of the teachers and the ones investing into him and the people at home and the personal investment into his life, all of a sudden this latent, unrealized potential all of a sudden was catalyzed. It was birthed inside of him. And here is Aelia today, an incredible Jesus lover and one of the greatest athletes in the entire state of Karnataka, which if no one had taken time to invest into his life, give of themselves to teach and to train and to model for him, he would have been living on the streets, possibly dead today, but definitely living on the streets with no one fighting for him, and all he would have had was the ability to run fast from people who he just stole food from. That's all he would have had. But because of his salvation moment... Someone, people taking interest in him, investing into him, all of a sudden his unrealized potential became realized. We love who those of you have been, you love Alia. Many of us know him. He's awesome. But what if that had not happened? See, it's in this picture of unrealized potential, those who need a salvation moment, that I want you to read afresh and anew and understand the Great Commission. Because all we're talking about here is a picture of discipleship. A salvation moment, those with unrealized potential and people investing into their lives to realize their potential, what God has placed inside of them. Jesus said to his disciples, go make disciples. A disciple. I mean, you, you probably know what it means. It refers to a student or an apprentice, doesn't it? A student or an apprentice. It literally, literally in the Greek, it means a follower, a follower. Remember Jesus, Jesus's disciples of the day, right? Said, hey, come follow me. And they literally Followed him in every part of their life, wherever the teacher went, wherever the rabbi went, wherever Jesus went, the disciples would follow him wherever he went. And then the disciples, they would they would learn from what he taught, the words that he spoke. He would literally teach and they would listen. They would take notes and mental notes and remember what he taught. But then they would also learn from from what he did. And his actions, right? Isn't that what kids do? They listen to their parents, tell them what to do, and primarily watch what their parents do. That's the nature of discipleship. Someone who comes in and real, looks at a person and sees an unrealized potential, takes them under their wing, begins to teach and to train this person who's following them in immaturity, in this latent, unrealized potential, and someone who, who knows more, who is more mature, comes alongside of and says, listen to what I say and do what I do. That was the language of Paul. He says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. He's saying, listen to what I say and do what I do, and it will make you a complete, mature disciple of Christ. This picture of being a disciple. The goal of a disciple was simple, to be like their rabbi, to be like their teacher. listen. Alia goes into this camp. He watches this natural player, this national player in the cricket team, and watches how he throws, watches how he hits, watches how he, th- how he catches the ball, watches how he moves, right? He listens to him teach, and when he comes back home, he's a hundred times better than he was before he left. Why? Because of discipleship, of someone who knew more coming along the per- side the person who knew less. This context of discipleship. And that's the picture of discipleship. It's simply the process of that happening. Right? It's the process of all that happening. The learning and the teaching, the listening and the training and the apprenticeship and the following. All of that stuff. It's the process of making a disciple. And so so for the disciples of Jesus, right, it was very clear, the, the call of Jesus, he says, I want you to make disciples. A disciple. Listen, Jesus embraced. Listen, Jesus. I don't want you to see this on the screen. Jesus embraced the model of, of me, Jesus embraced discipleship as the model of growth he expected his disciples to embrace. Jesus embraced discipleship as the model, the one and only model of growth he expected his disciples to embrace. It was crystal clear the expectation on the lives of the disciples. They were to make disciples. That was the call on their life. It was his chosen model. I want you to see the very familiar chapter in Matthew 28. We're going to read the whole thing and just spend a, just a moment here. It says in verse 18, Jesus laying his expectations out for his disciples. He says, therefore, it says that all, all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I love that. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. So he's going to say, I have authority. What am I about to say? carries weight. What am I about to say? You have to obey. Why? Because I have authority. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus said, listen, what am I about to say is important? You have to listen. Make disciples. Go make disciples. In the last verse, 20, he wants to recognize, but listen, you're not doing it in your own strength. This is really, really important. I'm not calling you to make disciples in your own strength. I am with you. Surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. So when you go to make disciples, when you go to teach, when you go to train, when you go to find an apprentice, right, and to do what I told you to do and what I did for you, I want you to recognize I'm with you. This is the great tension most of us have when we talk about discipleship, is that we think of ourselves doing it alone, in our own strength, in our own time, completely taking Jesus out of the equation and recognizing we can only be effective in anything that we do, empowered by the person of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. So he's going kind to of letting them know, I'm with you, don't freak out, is basically what he's saying. He says, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Bring them into the family. That's the first part. You bring them into the family. You invite the stranger in. You bring them into your family. You love on them. You bless them. You encourage them. You be a part of their life and let them be part of your life. You invite them into family right here, right? Baptizing them. Bring them into the family of God. Going from death into life. They now are a brother and a sister in Christ. And then he says, and teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. I just want you to keep this in mind. The Great Commission has nothing to do with evangelism or very little. The primary part of the Great Commission is about making disciples. It's the entry point and then the great long period of time of teaching and training. Jesus took three years to teach the disciples everything that they needed to know. Which means that when Jesus says, come make disciples and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. If Jesus took three years, we know it happens in more than just a one time sitting with someone. They get everything. It requires time. It requires investment. It requires intentionality. If it took Jesus three years, it's going to take us a little bit of time, too. And this is the expectation, right? And so I believe, I believe, listen, I believe that when, when we see and hear uh, Jesus say, make disciples, and then Acts chapter 2 happens and thousands come into the fold in one day in chapter 42, and they went to the homes of one another, they broke bread together, they, they prayed together, they studied the apostles' teaching together, and they had fellowship together. I mean, I'm just going to read one of reading the lines here, but I have to believe that disciples were obedient to Jesus and what you're simply getting is a picture of the guys and the women inviting strangers into their home to teach them these things and to teach them what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You have to read from the lines in that, but I, and, I, and that's my opinion, and you can't hold on to that and preach it as gospel truth. But I believe that they were obedient. And I believe they were inviting people into their home and they were simply doing what they saw Jesus do to them, which was take a group of people, maybe twelve, who knows, and invite them into their home and to sit with them and teach and to train and to raise up. I believe that's ultimately the picture of what you see. Acts 242 is not a bit is a picture of thousands of people together, although you had that happening. It's a picture of thousands gathering and then leaving that place for teaching, for training, and to talk about everything they had just heard. With a leader leading them. Who, well, was trying to figure out what the latent potential is in someone and bring that out inside of them so they could have followers? I mean, you know, like the Polycarps and the Ignatiuses of the early church, they were simply like they were, just, they were disciples of the disciples. Like we know some of their names. We're not clueless of those people. We know who they are. There's real named people, right? Who were disciples of the disciples. We have read their writing. You can read it right now. They had disciples, people who were following. They had to recognize that the message for the disciples was clear. They had to do what Jesus modeled for them over the past three years, what Jesus taught and modeled. they were to implement by following his footsteps, by doing what He did. The cycle started with Jesus. It was carried on by his disciples, and it has never ended. It's the one model that Jesus chose. He said, "This is what I initiate. this is what I start. This is how it happens." This is how kingdom, excuse me, community transformation happens. This is how my kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven. You live in family, and then you inv- and you, your togetherness leads to otherness. You begin to disciple other people. You give your life away. You lead them. You guide them. You direct them. You teach them. You train them. You take the aliens of the world to their unrealized potential. You name it. You pray for it, and you help it come out so that they can be twice as great as you are. Isn't that the picture of what we look at in Elijah and Elisha? Elisha said, I'm going to stay with you because I want a double portion of what you have. And Elijah says, that's great. Stay until you see me into to go and you can have twice as much. That's this picture of discipleship. I should live with the expectation that every single one of you should be twice as deep and twice as knowledgeable in Jesus as I am. Every single person, your children should know twice as much as you do and be twice as gifted and twice as empowered. That's the picture of discipleship. We take someone so they can exceed us. Jesus said, you will do even greater things than the things that I'm doing when I leave and send my spirit. He lived in the expectation of his disciples exceeding him. That's discipleship. Coming alongside. So so with that in mind, here's my question for us. And this is a, a rhetorical question. Whose responsibility is it to make disciples today? Whose responsibility is it? Like, if you had to answer this question, if you had to sit down with someone who reads it for the... So you say you sit down with someone who's never heard of the name of Jesus before, and they say, well, I see this discipleship thing in the, in the Scripture. Who, whose responsibility is it to make disciples today? Who's, who is to fulfill the Great Commission, the command of Jesus? Who are young believers supposed to follow so they can be shaped into Christ's image? Like, who is that today? Do you, do you think it's my role? It's the pastor's job. It's the pastor's job to disciple every single person in the church. I mean, I, I, listen, I feel bad for the guys with 10,000 people in their churches. I mean, that's got to be a lot of times. That's a, that's a lot of meals. I haven't broken it down. I should have, right? But if it's 12 people doing three meals a day with people, I wonder if he could reach 10,000 by the end of the year. I don't really know if he could or not. it would be really close. So you think it's the pastor's job, is it, is it the paid staff's job to disciple everyone? That'd be hard because I don't know the people that you know. I've never met them. Is it the, simply like in the, in the, is it the missionary's job? We've seen a, is it the missionary's job, the, the professionals, those who are really anointed, the, the really strong people, right? I think, I believe all of us theoretically know the answer to this question. It is the it is the followers of Jesus themselves, the ones who call them followers of Jesus, aka disciples who are to make disciples. If you say I am a follower of Jesus, if you say I am a disciple of Jesus, then theoretically the reality would be disciples make disciples, followers make followers. And so the answer to the question is simply this, at least biblically speaking, if you are a follower of Jesus, then the responsibility given by Jesus to his disciples who began began the process is that that has never ended. Therefore, if you're a disciple and a follower of Jesus, you have a responsibility to be obedient to him, to go make disciples and help people realize their unrealized latent potential inside of them. And I would say this, Throughout for the last two thousand and fourteen years, since Jesus died, every generation in, within the body of Christ, the Catholic Church up into the Reformation, and then Catholic Church and those in the Reformed, the Reformed Church, right? The Reformation Churches, the Evangelical Churches, us, every single church and denomination, every season from that point on has agreed with this reality. The only people who don't, one are idiots, and two, are so marginalized you never heard of them. Everybody in evangelical Christianity up and down believes discipleship is the way that people are shaped into the image of Christ. No one doesn't believe this. But are we doing it? Are we doing it? I believe the receiving of this call for the disciples is probably a little bit weighty. Why? Because Jesus is saying, hey, just as I've done for you for the last three years, you need to do it. And they go, oh, dang it. He's expecting us to be just like him. Oh, that's a little bit weighty, isn't it? You have to be like Jesus. <laughs> that's, that's 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 a big that's a big step, right? You have to be like Jesus. You got to take this step. This is a little bit overwhelming, but it wasn't weighty. Isn't it? like, oh my gosh, this is too much for me. Oh my gosh, God, I don't want to do this. It's too much. It was like, God, Whew, that's weighty. That uh, I feel the weight of responsibility. Isn't that something you want for your children? Don't you want them to understand the weight of responsibility in life? That's why you give them that's why you give them uh, uh, what's it called? You give them jobs to do in your home, you, you give them money for little things, but you want them again to, to, to grow and be responsible so when they leave your home they can actually stand on their own two feet. You want to grow and that's what's experiencing here this weight of responsibility of making disciples it's healthy, it's not bad, right? they said, This is weighty, this is the weight of responsibility. But we're going to do it because it's the call of Jesus. So I believe the receiving this call, right? It was weighty, but they embraced it because they understood that what they had did not belong to them, but had been entrusted with them or to them so they could give it to those that are in need. Their togetherness led to otherness, discipleship, finding the alias of the world who had their salvation moment and to help them realize their unrealized latent potential. I want to just look at Luke 12 this morning and end here this morning. Luke twelve, starting in verse forty two. This is actually I'm gonna read this, this is gonna be difficult. I just want you to know in advance. This is the one you don't necessarily read all the time. You don't read this in those moments of desperation in your quiet time, hoping that Jesus will speak to you personally. This is overwhelming. It says in the context of this this is Jesus is speaking with the fact that he's going to leave. It's a foreshadowing that he's going to die and he's going to leave the earth and he's going to leave the disciples in charge and responsible. And so he talks about that, and this is where we pick up right here in verse forty two. The Lord answered, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. But suppose the servant says to himself, hey, my master is taking a long time in coming. And he then begins to beat the other servants, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour he's not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. The servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with a few blows. From everyone who has been given much, excuse me, for the, from the, everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. So, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He's speaking directly to them. This is a message to all of his authentic and true followers of Jesus. And so, verse 42 faithful manager, it's the representative of the master who is put in charge while the master is away. This person held authority, he cared for their servants, he fed fed them. He fed them on behalf of the master. He gave of what the master had given him, right? The context of these verses is Jesus being away and the disciples being those who he has placed as ones with authority in the moment. Verse 45, the picture is clear. It's those who recognize this, but they pull away from the responsibility. It's the shirking of their duty saying, hey, we don't see him. He's distant and far off. Well, this is what we want to do, when we want to do it, how we want to do it. I don't know if you know a culture like that. I think I do, right? Verse 46 through 48a. So it comes in. This is a difficult part. He shows the punishment from the master towards the servant in their disobedience. It's, 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 it's powerful, right? And he's, using, listen, and he's using language that they'll understand in the context of their culture, all of them understood the master servant relationship. All of them understood from their own personal experiences. There were lots of servants who were following Jesus, right? Lots of masters who were following Jesus. He was speaking a language that they personally understood. That when, in this culture, when a servant disobeyed and took advantage of the master, they were forced to be disciplined. They were forced to be disciplined. And so in the moment he's coming and saying, For those who know but disobey, there's punishment, and those who even are ignorant to what the responsibilities are but still don't do what they're supposed to do, they'll be held responsible also. Because to whom much has been given, much will be required. That's the par- that's the that's the lesson of the parable in verse four and forty eight B to those given much, much is required. And so the point that we get at here, and putting this in the context of the the call of Jesus, and specifically the call to the Great Commission, he says, go make disciples. He has given them a responsibility, right? He says, do what I've done, take my place, fill in for me, go lead in in my absence. The disciples represent the faithful managers. They are faithful managers. They have responsibility. They are to to give away what's been given to them. They cannot shirk their duty. And if they do, what do we know that God does for his children when they disobey him? He disciplines them. He punishes them. He wants them to repent. So he disciplines them like a good father does to all of his children. He disciplines them. But I don't want you to miss this part about discipleship. He says, go make disciples. This is your responsibility. It's what I've given you and called you to do. You cannot pull back from your responsibility. You cannot shirk your duty. But what I find in the church of America today is simply this. There are two types of people. There are those who know the call of God to make disciples, but because of some excuse and some reason they give, they just don't do it. And then there are those that I talk to who are like, oh, really? There's a level of ignorance. They just don't know that they're supposed to make disciples. They don't know that they're supposed to, in the power of Jesus, give their life away and help people realize the potential. They just don't do it. But God speaks very clearly and says both of them are held responsible. Yes, those who understand and are willfully disobedient, there's a greater level of discipline. Those who are ignorant, still, there, there is it's a lesser, but there's still discipline that must take place, right? Even if they don't know, they're still responsible. The disciples have been given much, and much is required of them. In John 17, Jesus prays. This is on the screen, but I just want you to hear me say it. In John 17, Jesus prays for his disciples and he tells, he says, I've given them two things, two things, two things. Number one, verse 14, I've given them your word. It resides inside the disciples of Jesus. In verse 22, and this is the one that's most overwhelming to me. I have given them the glory that you gave me. His presence, his power. His authority, all of those pieces that made Jesus, Jesus he says, now I've given all of that to my disciples and the disciples give it to the next disciples until we get to today and tomorrow. God has given us his glory. It's been given to all of his disciples. Unrealized potential defines so many people who are outside and who are strangers and unfortunately define so many of us who are inside the four walls, who are desperate for an older woman to invest into them, looking for an older man to invest in them, someone more mature than them to invest into their lives. They're dying for it. They are literally living this place of latent, unrealized potential where they should be moving in this direction with Jesus, but because someone has not come alongside of them in their obedience to discipleship, they're literally sitting right here floundering like they were in the church of Corinth. Do you remember the church of Corinth? Jesus says, or Paul says through the, in the power of the Holy Spirit, says, although you should be eating spiritual meat right now, oh my gosh, you're still really, really immature and young in the faith with completely unrealized potential, even though you're prophesying every day, and even though you're speaking in tongues, and even though miracles are happening all around you, you have division and disunity in your ranks, and you're literally missing the point. You were, you were young and you were immature and completely missing it. Because no one has come and discipled and pulled out the unrealized potential inside of you and made it realized. We have a bunch of alias. Alias. Unrealized potential. Seeing this crossroad going, oh, I need someone in the family to simply come alongside of me and help me and to teach me and to train me and teach me by what they speak and to teach me as I watch them. As they follow, it doesn't mean so much to literally move into your home and watch everything that you do. It simply means that there's this intent. We're going to talk more about it in the upcoming weeks, but it literally just means, God, it's, just this, it's this saying, God, I'm going to take this person and I'm going to invest myself, the best of myself, into them for the purpose of growing them and with hopes that they surpass me. That's what we desire, is to take those with unrealized potential and to help them realize it. I want to watch this video this morning. It's not, it's not a super profound thing, but I want you to, to see this as just a, a picture this morning, a mental image of, of, of a new way of thinking, maybe of, of how God wants to shape how we view church and who we are as a church. So look at the screen and let's watch this uh, video uh, together. As we go to a time of worship this morning, it's our, our time of, uh, I just want you to reflect this morning. I want you to reflect on this call to family, this call to discipleship, what it looks like for you. We're going to talk about it this week in our small groups, if that's where you are in your small group. And I encourage you this week to, to say, God, what does this look like? And where am I, where am I in this? And God, what's going on? And God, am I answering this? And have I been discipled And And relinquishing a lot of your tension of saying, I've never been discipled. And and some of us say, I've never been discipled, so I can't disciple. I just say, well, be for someone else what you always wish someone had been for you. Be for someone else what you wish that someone had been for you. And as we do this, we begin to see God move. I want you to invite you, if you came this morning, with your offering, I have your offering baskets here. We have communion available. And we just say, hey, I want you to just to, to remember what God has done for us, what Jesus did for us through the, his sacrifice. We have ministry teams that will be available just to come and pray. If you came this morning saying, Steve, I can't even think about doing anything outside of myself because I'm dying this morning. We'd love to just to pray for you, to pray and believe God, to expect God to do things in your life so you can be released into the purposes of God for you. But I want you to—I want you just to pray this morning. I want you to process. This is this is this is a this teaching is more about God. This going to Jesus and processing what He has for you in this season. This can't be discipleship. When we get to heaven, Jesus is not going to ask you how well you did and how much how well you did at church and how much money that you made and how many houses you bought and how 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 you had canceled your debt. He's not going to ask you those questions. He's going to say, "Who did you disciple?" It's the last thing He left us with, and I want to be able to sit down with Jesus and say. You know, I really prayed and wrestled through that. And I want to thank you for leading me in that. And as hard as it was, as scary as it was, and as weighty as it was, God, do you remember that moment where I took that step to help those who had, who had unrealized potential and to help them realize. It, God, it was the, one of the hardest yet most life-giving steps as I invited that stranger into my home, into my life, and began to invest myself into them. You pray into that this morning, this ask and see what God would speak to you. You guys have a great week.